It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Are a few of my favorite things. When the dark 
Do 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 do
favorite things from the sound of music. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I, uh, my guest this hour is, uh, let, me, let me make sure I get this right. She is the uh, deputy opinion editor of Newsweek and the author of a new book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And her name is Bacha Unger-Sargon, and she joins me by phone. Bacha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really such an honor to be talking to you and to be talking to the people of Flint. <laughs> well, you know, it's... Uh, this is one of my, my favorite topics because I'm old enough to remember Walter Cronkite. Not quite old mm-hmm. enough to remember Edward R. Murrow, but, um, <laughs> but, but there's certainly been a shift during the last half of the last century and even more so into the, into the, uh, the new millennium. And, and I want to talk to you about that, but but first, c- taking right out of the title, what is woke media? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, <laughs> so I get a lot of validation for my thesis from two sources. The first is journalists like you who have noticed a huge sociological shift in who journalists are, people who can remember when journalism was a blue collar trade, you know, a working class job, and, and, and have seen that shift, witnessed that shift to where it's part of really the American elites today. You know, in order to become a journalist today, you really have to come from money and have a very, 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 um, you know, high status degree. So that's the first source of, of validation I get. The second is from working class Americans who are people of color, black Americans, Latino Americans, who look at the way race is discussed in the mainstream media and just do not recognize their values at all. So the word woke originated as black slang for staying aware of and awake to the ways in which the state, uh, America, was still uh, systemically racist. And of course, that's an extremely important thing to do. When I use the word woke media, what I'm talking about is a phenomenon that sociologists have noticed that started around five, six, seven years ago to where white liberals have become more radical and more extreme in their views on race than black and Latino Americans. That's how I use the word woke um, to describe a kind of obsession and moral panic around race that white liberals are perpetuating, that the media is perpetuating, which is made up increasingly of affluent, highly, highly educated white liberals. And I wanted to understand why that was happening. And and what I found was that these two phenomena are related. The status revolution that happened among journalists from blue-collar trade to highly, highly educated, elite, affluent profession is the reason that the media now talks about race in a way that is so alienating to black and Latino Americans. And, and another thing that's, that's come up in just the last decade or so 
is um, the concept of fake news. Uh, now, your book is called Bad News. What's the <laughs> difference between bad news, good news, and fake news? That's such a great question, Tom. Um, you know, President Trump used to call the media, you know, the enemy of the people, and you're fake news, and this is fake news, and that's fake news. Um you know, unfortunately, in some ways he was right, so we just saw the Steele dossier implode, right? So the whole Russiagate, the whole, um, you know, obsession with this idea that Trump was colluding with Russia started with, you know, a series of documents that was published by BuzzFeed that claimed to show that the Russians had compromising information on Donald Trump. And, you know, the man at the head of that was just arrested for lying to the FBI, you know, the whole, that whole story fell apart, but it was covered so voraciously by the news. So I think in many cases he was right that there was really no there there to what they were reporting. That's fake news is when the media gets their hands on something that's too delicious to fact check, right? It's, it conf confirms their biases so much. They so want it to be true that they publish it, you know, without it even being the case. To me, bad news is, is sort of the woke version of that to where you take every story and you make it about white supremacy, you make it about race, whether or not that is the case, in an attempt to re-racialize American life. And, and I think that that's just disastrous. It, it's like I said, it's extremely alien to, to, to um, minorities and to, to people of color, to the way they see themselves and they see their agenda. But it's also, um, I believe, a way of sort of defending the status quo by, by really distracting us from the real divide in America, which is about class, which is about income inequality. And you just can't get people to talk about that stuff in the same way and with the same vigor um, as they talk about race at a time when Americans are, you know, so united about how evil racism is and so united in their disgust of white supremacy. The words white privilege, white supremacy have absolutely skyrocketed, you know, in the mainstream liberal media, even as these phenomena are, thank God, finally sort of in our rearview mirror. Of course, there are still areas that we need to work on, police brutality, for example, but Republicans are also agitating for police reform now, right? So there's just no longer that divide anymore. And I argue, I, I tried to figure out why is it that when we're no longer divided on these issues, you have Republicans calling for police reform, Republicans releasing people from prison, saying mass incarceration is, is, is unchristian, right? How come we are now, we still believe that we're so divided about issues like race? And I, you know, again, I argue that this is very much about the status revolution among journalists, that as journalists became part of the American elite, they abandoned the working class of all races. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek. Straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, 
and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. From Kenneth. From Louis. Martelia Newman. From Marisha. Bertrand. <laughs> and the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about media with 
Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek, straight ahead. One of the things that I've noticed, and it's very troubling to me, it makes it hard for me to even watch the news, especially television news, is, you know, I, I do a show that's based on long-format interviews, and I try to get mm-hmm. people who, you know, are experts in their field and let them share their thoughts and opinions and let listeners, you know, kind of make up their mind. But when I see the same sort of format being played out on television, the hosts and anchors of these various programs are not calling on experts, but journalists to comment on the headline of the day. Do, do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. And and yeah. it is that is so frustrating to me. You know, when did the people covering the story become the expert on the story? That is such a great question. I think the answer is it's all really about framing. You know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox as well, like they won't let somebody on who's going to challenge their viewers' viewpoint, although ironically Fox is better about this than CNN and MSNBC. The New York Times as well at this point, it will not allow a quote in that challenges the viewpoint of its readership. Who is the New York Times' readership? This is another thing that happened over the last 50 years, and I'm really curious to know if, if you've noticed this as well. It used to be that you had different outlets catering to different sectors of the population, right? So you would have the, the, the mass media you know, um, outlets or someone like Walter Cronkite, right, who was really speaking to the working class, the middle class, and the elites at the same time. You know, you would have the New York Times, which was catering to a sort of highly educated, affluent, liberal set. Then you would have the Washington Post for the, you know, the, the, the political set. Then you would have the Atlantic, which was more for, you know, long form, you know, deeper dive, right? More for an academic set. Then you would have, you know, each outlet had sort of its audience. And, and um, the point was to broaden that audience as much as possible. So you had a lot of towns that were one paper towns, right? You know, and, and it was before the great sorting. So that town would have liberals and conservatives. So, you know, you could either lean one way or the other and lose 50% of the readers, or you could go down the middle and get everybody, right? So there was sort of a premium placed on trying to get as broad a readership as possible. Today, because of the pressures of digital media, you have all of the outlets are going for the same six, seven, eight million highly educated, affluent progressives. That, that's sort of all the media outlets are now catering to that same set. MSNBC, CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Fox. They're all, because we, we, we as digital media journalists know so much about who is clicking on what and where the readers are coming from and how to drive more engagement, we, everybody is now going for the same set. That's why you see this uniformity of views across what were once very distinct outlets. And I think that gets back to what you're saying, which is that, you know, these, the readers have been trained to expect to see only what confirms their previously held biases. Now, if you put an expert <laughs> on CNN, they might tell you something you don't want to know. For example, you know, the fact that while the police insult black people more, lay hands on them more, put them in handcuffs more, pull them over more, beat them up more, which are all huge, huge moral emergencies, they don't shoot them more for some reason. When you control for income, you know, it turns out they shoot poor whites as, as often as they shoot poor black people. Now, that's, that's, that's a fact. Now, that doesn't mean that's still, me, to me, police brutality is still one of the most important issues in America to deal with. But, you know, if you said that on CNN, you would get a lot of angry liberals saying, what are you talking about? 
there is a genocide happening from police against people of color, right? Like, so I think that that is really why you see them going to journalists because journalists have been trained to tell their readers what the readers want to hear, as opposed to maybe things that might challenge their readers. I, I blame that as an unintended consequence of uh, niche marketing. <laughs> mm, absolutely, yes, yes. I, I, you know, I and I say it jokingly. But it's really not. It's at about the same time that that pe- that advertisers were figuring out um, how to find uh, television viewers. For example, um, we'll just take soccer moms for example. That they were going to be interested in minivans, and so they would try and mm. figure out how to put advertising in front of the shows that soccer moms were likely to watch. And somewhere mm-hmm. along the line, news started being packaged the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's a great insight, yes. Soccer moms are going to be a lot interested in stories about school shootings than maybe a factory worker. Right, right. No, I think you're, you're 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 absolutely correct. Um, you know, in the beginning, when 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 a lot of newspapers and media outlets went digital, there was this fantasy that it would have this great democratizing effect, right? Because it was now essentially free to publish something, right? You just had to put it on a website, and so there was this illusion that this was going to lead to a much more democratic form of media. But actually, what happened was a lot of zeroing in on soccer moms, right? Because you could now control for who was reading your publication, and if you could get only affluent people to read your publication, you could charge more for ads and you could sell their data for more money because they had more purchasing power, right? And so essentially what started in the 70s, which was, you know, the mass abandonment of factory workers and other working class people in the mainstream media, it really um, escalated when, when, when the news media went digital. And the other problem with that is... Um is is the speed now there's always been competition between media uh between back in the day when we had daily newspapers you know and sometimes multiple newspapers in in bigger uh population areas some of the bigger cities they would compete to get a story out first but now it's become so immediate that that these things are happening because of social media in real time. And so it's impossible to vet a story before it gets out there. And I I talked to a a FBI profiler once who said that the first reports of big events, mass shootings and so on, are going to be wrong. They're going to be wrong about the number of people injured, the number of shooters, the types of weapons, because they they go on very blurry witness accounts in Mm. the immediate aftermath. And it's a Mm -hmm. couple days before everything is sorted out and you get the real facts. And, And so I've been watching that, that, tendency and you know and and i am so sick of the phrase breaking news i can't even describe (laughs) it yeah it's it's so funny because a lot of the mistakes 
you know, you're never going to make a mistake that um, challenges your priors, right? Like the mistakes are always in the direction of confirming what you want to believe about about the malefactors, right? <laughs> right. But it, but it takes a couple days. You know, the law enforcement people on the scene don't know anything yet. You know, they're they're just yeah. getting there and asking questions at the same time that other people are asking questions and posting the answers before it's been checked and double-checked and all that. And journalists didn't used to do that. I, I mean, they, it, it was one thing to be first, but it was more important to be right. Um, you know, something that I think maybe your listeners don't understand is that every journalist is on Twitter. And if you can get out a tweet about something that happened that proves that your po- you know your followers political opponents or their perceived political opponents are not just as bad as they thought but even worse right have they're murderous let's say that tweet will go viral and all of the people that you respect including celebrities and people with millions of followers are going to start retweeting that tweet the pressure is not just to get it out from a business side there's a kind of social psychological pressure here to where, you know, what you have on offer is the attention and approval of celebrities, which you as a journalist can get if you tell them something that confirms, you know, their worst suspicions about the people they see to be their political enemies. And that journalists spend all day on Twitter. So they, that is like the social, that, it's like the cafe where it used to be, you know, where you would go to meet people or like the diner where you would see other journalists and you guys would talk about what was going on. But it's so siloed and the pressures are so intense and you have politicians, you know, getting into the mix, right? And people with just millions and millions of followers, it really, really, I cannot overstate how much that, 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 that arena uh, shapes the news. I was shocked to find out that our in Flint, Michigan, where I'm, where my show is based, we had a daily newspaper here, the Flint Journal. It still exists, mm-hmm. but under an M Live online umbrella, and it's morphed to an online version of itself. And more and more, I, I, I'm seeing and learned that the stories are not you know, long, detailed, you know, deep dives into what's going on behind the headlines, but photo essays, and they get a click for every photo you look at. And so the stories have become more about collecting clicks than sharing information. It's about the reaction of the consumer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this happens because, like, papers that are failing, you know, in, in, you know, local newspapers or what have you will, will bring in, you know, the, you know, these consultants who charge, you know, $250,000. <laughs> and the consultants will often, you know, advise them to go this route, the aggregation route, the clickbait route. You know, it's, it's really sad. But I think for a lot of these places, it's that or perish, right? Like, these are the options. Because um, there's just no advertising money anymore. So, you know, I feel for that. Like, I feel for a a small local publication that wants to, you know, still have, you know, a a, a footprint in the American media landscape that's facing extinction or clickbait. It's, It's very, very sad. 
The problem is, is that the New York Times is doing it too, Tom. <laughs> I I know it's I, I'm using I'm using a small town example, but you know yeah, I've yeah, talked yeah. to people from the Times and from the Post, and they're as frustrated by it yeah. as well, and and it raises the uh, the question: What can you describe? What news ought to be what is it people need to know versus what they want to know and will react to that is such a great question because i think we know too much tom like i I feel like we have replaced in america we've replaced like spirituality and community with information and knowledge like i do think we all know too much like we don't need to know you know, who AOC is angry at every day. But I get multiple emails (laughs) from reputable news organizations informing me about this all the time, about the sort of the nitty-gritty of what's happening within the Democratic Party. Who cares? They're either going to pass this bill or they're not. They're probably going to pass it in some version, right? You know, it's like that that thing where we just know too much, where we've replaced um, a kind of like like social cohesion, and um, a sense of what it means to be an American with just this, like, minutia about what's going on at, you know, the levels of, of politics that just really, really, really does not, it does not matter to, like, the average American. So I, I totally agree with you that there's just this attempt to tell us so many things that we just really do not need to know. And I think that the solution is really what you're seeing, actually, which is a mass consumer boycott of the news. I mean, Americans are just checking out. If you look at CNN's ratings, they are abysmal, and they're just checking out. They're just saying, stop telling me these things that I don't need to know, um, you know, things that, you know, you're making money off of, you know, that the rage that they, that the New York Times uh, instills in its readers for profit motive is, is inexcusable, and I think a lot of people um, are figuring this out. And this gets back to another point from your book, here. the... Um in the title, it says how woke media is undermining democracy. The same people that are tuning out of the news don't vote. Absolutely. And for Absolutely. much the same reasons. They've been so Absolutely. turned off by what's going on. And it's it's the old debate about politics and policy. You know, I have a weekly political roundtable, and we love to follow the horse race. You know, and it it is fun to do. But, you know, I don't consider my show a news show. For shows that call themselves news shows, they need to be sharing policy, not politics. I could not agree with you more. And I think that there's a great example in the Build Back Better where... You know, it was very clear to everybody who the heroes were and who the villains were and all of the infighting. And then the media just totally failed to include the fact that at the last minute, the Democrats reintroduced the salt deduction, which is a tax break for wealthy millionaire and billionaires who live in New York and New Jersey, right? That's something that is actually really important for people to know, you know, that in this bill that's, that's being passed in the name of working families, there's a huge tax cut for billionaires and millionaires being passed by Democrats. That's important information. That was not covered. Instead, you had endless coverage of the squad fighting with the moderates, Houston <laughs> cinema every single day, right? Like, who's angry at who, right? And 
it's just such a great example of how the thing that, that Americans actually needed to know, they couldn't find that out. I, you know, people, I talk to people, they don't even know about this. If you're not extremely in, involved in this, you wouldn't have even heard of it, you know? But you would know that Kirsten Sinema is the most hated Democrat in America, right? You know, it's interesting. There's a, um, a uh, uh, broadcasting school uh, nearby. It's between Flint and Detroit. And um, I was a little disappointed to find out that they're really pushing their students to go into tech. You know, mm. not they're, they're not even considering or trying to groom people for, you know, an on-the-mic or on-camera presence. It's all about doing the, the technology that makes everything work. They're, it's it's primarily a radio school, and so they're teaching people to be board operators and to do wow. editing and that kind of stuff. And And I thought, well, if that's what's being taught, where are the Walter Cronkites going to come from? Is that true in in uh, in journalism schools as well? There's a lot of focus on um, yeah. There, well, <laughs> in journalism schools, I know it's that, apples and where... oranges, Batia, but but is the same kind of um, more form than substance thing happening? I mean, I would say, again, it comes back to class, right? Like, um, the, the the only people who get a shot at being Walter Cronkite come from the elites now. They go to these journalism schools that cost, you know, $70,000 a year. You know? That, I mean, that is insane. You and I know you can't teach somebody how to be a good interviewer. You can't teach someone how to be a good listener. You, that, that's something you have to learn from doing the job, right? You, you, can't, you can't teach someone that. And they certainly are not teaching them that. You know? well, it's all you, about networking. And yeah. you have to at least be curious about the answer. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody doing an interview, and they've got a clipboard in front of them, and... You know, they ask somebody something, and they come back with this, well, that happened right after I was in prison. And then the next question on the clipboard comes up, and it it has something to do with, you know, what kind of car do you drive? And I think, wait a minute, wait a minute, they just said they were in prison. Don't you want to follow that up a little bit? And... That's and that comes from, you know, don't write out the questions and and you know go through it mechanically. Listen to what's being said and and turn it into a conversation and be interested in what the answers are. Yeah, absolutely. So we started. You said that you had noticed a shift in among journalists in terms of who. Can you t- tell me more about that? What have you noticed? One of the things I notice is they don't seem to be as informed. They don't understand mm. how the government is actually structured. Right. right. You know, they know all about polling and they know all about, you know, politics and getting out early and spin and, you know, all of the horse race stuff. But they really don't know what governing is all about. Yeah. 
I, I remember talking, you know, during the, the height of the uh, uh, Trump campaign about draining the swamp, and I talked to a former high-ranking government official who was talking about the swamp, and he says, you know what the swamp is? It's a whole bunch of, you know, lifelong public servants who make the trains run on time. <laughs> that's great yes <laughs> and, and you know i i think what i see in 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 the newer wave of journalists is number one a tendency to um take a press release and rewrite it mm-hmm. um a a an unfortunate lack of understanding of how the various departments in government work and and they spend a lot of time on the celebrity of public office and not the business of governing totally yep if that makes sense and it's been going on long enough that it's the norm you know i always say that you know Privacy is a thing of the past because young people today don't have an expectation of privacy. Yeah, they don't even want it. <laughs> they they don't even know that they don't have it. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true with people that are getting the news. They're getting their news from bumper stickers and memes and don't realize, you know, as Paul Harvey would say, there's a rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek. Straight ahead. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on our troubles will be out. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development. 
cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
and the Tom Sumner Program. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek, straight ahead. That's that's my biggest concern, and I think that's what you're talking about in in your book is that there there's just this uh, it's it's become there was show business and news, and they were separate. Now there's a news business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I just to bring it back to class for a minute, it's just the exactly like you said, I totally agree with you about the celebrity side of things. I think that this is you know, a, a problem in our pol- among our politicians, but because our politicians are increasingly drawn from the same class as <laughs> the journalists that are, you know, um, supposed to be covering them. Um, and, and it's, you know, when you get a certain level of education and see yourself through this very kind of um, narcissistic, very online social media lens as the hero of every story, right, the way that some of our politicians do, and some of our journalists increasingly, you're going to get that kind of celebrity where, to where journalists themselves seem to be casting themselves as a role, you know, in the narrative itself, right, as opposed to being the ones telling the story. And I think that that's so, it's exactly like you said, there's something about it that's really um, not just off-putting, but is so alienating to the average American, you know, the lives of individual journalists are so different from the lives of, you know, average Americans that there's a real disconnect there. And what you're increasingly seeing is a sort of class of journalists who are creating journalism for themselves. And because they are in the top 10%, that's who they're creating journalism for. And uh, it's just there's just been this mass abandonment of the middle and, and working classes. And and I think it's unfortunate, and it and it frustrates me when I watch, uh, you know, the evening news or or watch CNN or or Fox or MSNBC, and they go to their, let's just say, they go to their White House correspondent. Mm-hmm. Used to be when they would go to the White House correspondent, the correspondent would be standing there with a high-ranking official from the White House asking them questions. Now you've got an anchor that goes to the correspondent, and the correspondent is answering the questions. That's such a good point. That is just such a good point. Yeah, it's it's because I I didn't even think about it that way, but that's exactly what I'm talking about, of, you know, casting themselves a starring role in the news as journalists, right, instead of being the storyteller, there is this, you know, putting themselves in front of the camera. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and it's, it's also, uh, you know, led into um, or contributed to a proliferation of lack of attribution. Yeah. You know, we're not attributing information yeah. to the sources anymore. You know, it's, a high-ranking official, um, an unnamed source. They, there are all these kinds of things, and and I've and I've asked this question of journalists before, B- 
about here and, and said, you know, what happened to people going on the record? And they said, oh, you'll never get anybody to talk if they have to have their name mentioned. Well, to me, you don't have the story yet. Right. Right. You know, until right. you can get somebody to go on the record and say, this is what we did, you're, yeah. you might as well be making it up. But people don't see it that way. They don't have that expectation anymore of getting it from the source. I think there's also, um, I completely agree with you, and along with that has been, um, you know, this shift really started a little bit earlier. You know, in, in 1964 was the first year that most Americans said they got their news from television. And the impact that had on sort of written journalism was that um, print journalists, felt they had to add something to the news because they could no longer just report it because you could get that from TV in a much more immediate way, right? So that, that you started to see a shift through the 60s and 70s that we're very much in right now to where the news became much more interpretive. The problem with that is that, you know, when journalists are so different from the Americans whose stories they're telling, right, there's, you know, 75% of, of journalists live on the coast meaning they live in the most expensive American cities. They live in the most blue cities. So not just that most journalists live in democratic states, democratic districts, but in the most, you know, pro-Clinton, pro-Biden districts. They are much less religious than, you know, average Americans. They make a lot more money if they can make it into the, you know, the, their 40s and 50s and stay in the industry. And to become a journalist, you have to come from money because the starting salary is so low, but you have to live in one of these expensive cities, right? Meaning somebody has to be funding this. So journalists now, their lives are extremely different from the lives of average Americans, which means that when they bring their interpretive lens to what's happening, you know, that interpretive lens is increasingly reflecting the values of Harvard and Princeton and Yale and the elite institutions that they went to, right, because we know the New York Times, for example, only takes interns from the top 1% of universities. So what you end up with is a situation where, you know, when someone like Donald Trump wins an election or, you know, Glenn Youngkin, journalists who have been, you know, educated in these, like, highly elite institutions who could never imagine a decent person voting for a Republican, they reach for the one thing that, you know, they just call them racist, right? They call them white supremacists. And you see this again and again in the New York Times, on CNN, MSNBC, just journalists who have no idea what life is like in middle America um, using an academic lens to analyze their fellow Americans and then putting that in print and telling the rest of the world, you know, that their Amer fellow Americans are fallen. Um, I find that to be really, really dangerous. Well, my guest is uh, Batya Unger-Sargon, who is a, uh, oh, I want to get this title right, Deputy Opinion Editor of Newsweek and the author of a new book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. But, yeah, I told you when we first started talking that this is a subject near and dear to my heart, and, and I feel like I... I uh, probably needed to let you talk more about the book but what's up next for you well <laughs> first of all the opposite i th this is this is my opportunity to hear from you know other people about how they see things so i'm so glad that you shared with me i, I really learned a lot from you tom 
what's next for me is um, this is not the book I initially wanted to write. Um, I wanted to write a, a book about um, about about how Americans are much more united over the values that that this great nation was founded on. For the first time, I I was doing a lot of reporting from the South um, over the last few years, and and I wanted to write a book about how you know there's been seismic shifts on the right when it comes to issues like equality and. Um, I couldn't sell the book, Tom. Nobody would buy it from me, so I I wrote this book <laughs> instead. But I'm really hoping to go back to that and and write about you know to write a book called The More Perfect Union about about the, just how how little divides Americans and how the people pushing this division and they are all in the elites, they're in the political elites, the media elites because they're making money off of it, and we just don't have to accept that narrative about ourselves. That's that. So hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully that's what's next. <laughs> well, I would love to believe that more unites us than divides us and that that isn't just a slogan. <laughs> Baji, it's been a real privilege talking with you. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do not have a website. Um, You can find op-eds that I edit um, at Newsweek, uh, which I would love because I I try to to, to give a lot of space to working-class Americans uh, in our pages. So check out Newsweek's opinion section. It's maybe the last place in America where you'll find, you know, uh, right and left, right next to each other. We focus on debate a lot and try to bring people from all sides together. And um, I'm on Twitter, of course. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Bunger Sargon, although I recommend people stay away from Twitter if they can. Um, and, wow, Tom, thank you so, so much for having me. This has been such a privilege and an honor talking to you. Well, bye. Yeah, take care and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Again, that was uh, Deputy Opinion Editor for the uh, for Newsweek and author of a new book called Bad News How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy Batya Unger Sargon and uh, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner programs <laughs> Hi, this is Tom Bodette from Manger 6. We know you've been traveling a lot this holiday season, and you've probably been told there's no room at the inn. Well, that's just not the case here at Manger 6. Why, for just 29 drachma, we'll put you up in a warm, comfortable stable with plenty of fresh milk for the newborn. There's even individual stalls for your mules, camels, or whatever you happen to be driving across the desert. And in case unexpected visitors decide to drop in on you, shepherds, wise men, holy ghosts, it's not a problem at Manger 6. There's plenty of frankincense and myrrh to go around. This is Tom Bodette from Manger 6 reminding you, there's always room at this inn. We'll even leave a star out for you. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.